Jesus Church College. Join hosts Richard Tamburo and Molly Inman as they chat with other faculty and guests about church, the Bible, theology, and learning the way of Jesus here in Portland. This week is part two on biblical justice. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard and I'm here with Molly and Amber, who are going to remain silent. Hello. (laughs) Who I look at awkwardly across the room. Um, And yeah, this is part two. We are unpacking biblical justice, which is, uh, I don't even know what the word is. I was going to say very apropos for this moment. And I was like, that's a really weird way to say that, but necessary that that's a better word (laughs) we need to talk about yeah because we have just gone through a couple of years of this being a hot topic but what we're watching especially in sort of uh well i was gonna say in the christian world but particularly the evangelical part of the christian world Mm -hmm. um but that's like a fairly dominant voice in american culture so it's not just in the church, it's like in our towns, in our school boards, in our lots of different places, is just a really sort of vitriolic uh, blame and shame game, kind of just a lot of conflict around this. And um, if you're theologically minded and you've studied this topic, it's sort of frustrating because you're watching a lot of confusion about what the Bible says fuel a lot of the conflict. And so we're not moving towards a resolution because we're not really listening to what the Bible has to say. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that's that's our job in this mini-series is like to try to lay a foundation, like what does the Bible say justice is like? Mm-hmm. And so last time we looked at community and responsibility because the way the Bible talks about those things is different than the way Western society and especially American Western society talks about them. And so if you haven't listened to that, press pause, go back, listen to that one, because that will help this podcast make more sense. But today we've got another few defining characteristics of justice that we're going to talk about, and they are advocacy, equity, and power. And so we're going to take each one in turn, and our job is to just try to unpack it in the Bible, help you think about it, and um, oh my goodness, we could do like a series of podcasts on each turn. These are massive biblical topics. Mm-hmm. This gets into like the character of God's, God's ideal for society, loads of really interesting like how do we unpack the scriptures and put them together, mm-hmm. and um, really rich. But what what we want to do is hopefully give you enough that if you've not thought about one of these terms before, you can kind of, I don't know, like get the target lock on it and be like, oh, that's a thing. Like I might want to go learn more, might want to go explore it more. And we'll put some book recommendations and things in the notes if you want to go do that. Um, But it's going to get us to, at the end of this chat about justice in a couple of weeks' time, saying, okay, so the conversations about justice going on in the world, like, which side is the Bible on? Mm. And rather unsurprisingly, (laughs) I always think of, like, when Joshua is scouting out the land in the beginning of the book of Joshua, and he meets the angel of the Lord, and he's like, whose side are you on? Our side or theirs? And the angel of the Lord says, "Uh, no. Like, one question, dude. (laughs) Like, yeah. And, like, rather unsurprisingly, most of the conversations going on social media secular culture places like that like they reflect bits of the bible but none of them really are biblical justice Mm -hmm. and so the challenge for us is to like open our hands if we're gonna like lock in on like a verse like uh like micah you know do justice love mercy walk humbly that walk humbly part is like okay i want to open my hands to if I think, man, justice is about this, but I'm missing a piece of the jigsaw, right. like I want God to be able to, to teach me about it. So let's take our first one. That's a lot of introduction. Um, so the first one is advocacy. And I feel like this is one that we have a box for. Mm-hmm. Like you could talk to a young person and be like, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to work in advocacy. So it's like a, it's a known 
term mm -hmm. for us, right? Uh, and I feel like I've talked a bunch, so I'm going to just look pleadingly at Molly or Amber. Like, what's the just sort of cultural idea of advocacy just for us here in America? Yeah, advocacy is, I think, something that we we think we understand fully because we sometimes think of advocacy as speaking on behalf of... Um, speaking on behalf of someone else, um, speaking for those who don't have a voice, advocating for, right, those for those who um, who might be marginalized or uh, have injustices done to them. But I think advocacy is a little bit um, more complex when we think about it because, you know, if we're thinking about uh, certain, you know, groups of people that we might want to advocate for, um, we're not always necessarily the most equipped to advocate for just anybody and anyone. Um, that there's a lot of uh, awareness and um, kind of a fuller picture that goes behind advocating for somebody. You really have to understand them. You have to know them. Um, you have to be deeply acquainted with them. Um, and we, we talk about this when we talk about community um, because you really can't advocate for someone that you're not in some sort of community with mm -hmm. uh, or else it just becomes performative and looks like you're just trying to show the world how, you know, just you are or how, you know, helpful you are. But if you don't actually know the person or people that you're advocating for, um, then it, it kind of is like not the best. So like advocacy is something we think we understand, I, I think, but um, there's a, just a much fuller picture and a humility that has to come mm -hmm. with advocating for people. Um, because advocacy can, if we're not careful and don't check our pride, turn into something that <clears throat> we end up looking almost down on people and saying, well, I need to advocate for you because you clearly need the help and I'm in a position rather than, um, creating space for those who are marginalized and those who face injustice to have a voice to speak on their own experiences. Um, so, so yeah, the cultural idea of advocacy is just anyone you see, at least from what I can tell, anyone you see who needs a voice, will you speak on behalf of it? And I think there's just a bigger picture of, do we speak on behalf of them or do we help create space for them to be able to speak on their own? Um, do we, are we just telling them what they should think or feel, um, based on their experiences or are we saying, Hey, what is it that you are experiencing and how not just let me speak for you, but how can I help, um, help you not experience and go through the marginalization that you're going through. So I think it's a really actually a complex idea that at least we have some framework for, right? Because yeah. we do understand being an advocate for someone. Um, but I think we have to be careful too, because at the same time, a lot of times we still need advocates for ourselves. That's why the Holy spirit is our advocate, right? Mm -hmm. Is because there's lots of times when we ourselves can't speak on our own behalf because we don't really know, um, how to, you know, adjust our uh, situation. So, yeah. So I just think it's, it's an interesting kind of back and forth when we think about advocacy. So mm -hmm. I want to tease out like a couple of things you said, I think are really important. One was the like other centeredness mm -hmm. of advocating. Cause I'm aware, like we use the phrase like, oh yeah, you should advocate for yourself. So it might be easy to misunderstand this and we're like, yeah, biblical justice means like everyone should advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's like a just world where everyone just is like, no, that the biblical concept we're talking about here that's in scripture, and we're going to unpack some verses to, to illustrate this in the Bible, is where you come alongside someone else because they have a need they can't meet by themselves. And it might be like a physical need or, a, you know, like a, a lack of a resource, mm -hmm. but it might also be they've been sort of disempowered, like they're being marginalized or you know, something like that. Um, and, but then there's a sort of a heart and a method, mm -hmm, right. right? And so like you didn't use the phrase white savior complex, right? but that's, you know, that's like the bad version. Like there's a version of wanting to step in, mm -hmm. which is about um, feeling dominant, mm -hmm. you know, thinking you're right, thinking everyone should do things your way. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of driven by a desire to control. Um, so, like, that's a bad motivation. There's another motivation which is, like, feeling guilty. So mm -hmm. you're trying to, you feel ashamed that you know you're in a better position than someone else. Mm -hmm. And so you try to diminish your shame. Um, you know, shame's not a 
godly motivating mm-hmm. you know right. for it's like red flag it's like that's not good but really it's it's like compassion screams mm-hmm. from the scriptures as the motivator like i mean it's like a buzzword with mm-hmm. jesus and you know but it's all through the scriptures yeah and it's working with people not at them you know like if we think of you know something that i'm sure almost anyone can agree on you know looking at third world countries and some of their needs um if we look at them and pity them in a sense of like, wow, life must be so hard for you. So I'm going to come in here with my first world way of doing things and tell you that that's the best way. Um, I'm going to tell you how to spend your money. I'm going to tell you how to use your resources because we've got it right in America or the West. Um, whereas there are some real needs in third world countries, obviously. Um, but people who live in those countries often know what their needs are better than we do. And so when we advocate for them, um, we have to be aware of our, our thinking. Yeah. Like our, our, do we think that we know what's best? And so the, therefore we think we're doing other advocacy, you know, advocacy for the sake of others, but really we're doing it kind of a self in a self-interested mm-hmm. way. Like I want you to, how could you not have all the things that I have now? I want you to have all those things when they're, those might not be the needs that they have and they're going to know what those are. So coming in a way of saying, Hey, I, I happen to have a resource in a lot of cases, it's money that I want to help, help you with, but I'm not going to tell you what to do with it. I'm going to share. It's like a working together, a partnership rather than a I'm telling you what to do with what resources that I could, I could give you. Um, and so that's just, I mean, that's an example yeah. that's kind of easy. We can all rally around that one. Cause I know there's some other justice examples that get more contentious, but I feel like that's just a good illustration of not telling people what they need to do with their needs, but asking what are your needs and what do I have something that could help you with them? Um, rather than, yeah, kind yeah. of that dominate domineering. I'm going to, you know, wrangle you into what I think yeah. is best for your life. Like, I, think your about, I think about, so let's like get some scripture out. Yeah. Like, as that makes me think about like Ruth and Boaz, because mm. she had physical needs and things, but as a widow, like her big problem was that she was powerless to do something to improve her situation in life. You know, she was, um, she was more at risk. She had suffered loss and just having like basic needs to have a flourishing life. Like she was spiritually, like in terms of the community, like in terms of poverty, just like very marginalized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but what doesn't happen is Boaz doesn't come along and just set up a foundation to take care of her physical needs. Right. In fact, he didn't need to because God had already put something like that in place in the the laws of how they farmed um but he also didn't just be like oh you're powerless so i'm going to adopt you Hmm. you know like her voice and her initiation like there was a partnership but like this story moves forward because of what both of both ruth and boaz do Mm -hmm. you know and so but there does you know boaz extends his power and his influence to affect not just his own realm, but hers as well. Yeah. So then then it starts to look like advocacy. It's like, okay, there's a resource you need here that you don't have, but I have. Mm-hmm. And that's the, sh- that, so when you were talking about sharing, yeah. I was like, that's kind of the dynamic that's playing out there. Um, and, you know, I I would say there was risk and, you know, it cost Bowers a lot, and mm-hmm. yeah, but, it was a beautiful love story so it's yeah. kind of like uh, a little easier for him to advocate but in a way even that gets to the motivation thing again mm-hmm. right like compassion is driven by love now that's a romantic love story but love stories don't have to be romantic mm-hmm. but that like it that's what will drive this this dynamic forward in a healthy way not right. shame not guilt yep. not power yeah you know not control and so I, so I love the Ruth Boaz dynamic there mm-hmm. yeah I think, too, if we take our cues from Jesus, um, his is acting more out of like the unconditional, compassionate love. What I've noticed about the way in which he interacts with advocacy is like he's always moving towards the marginalized, but doesn't leave them marginalized. And I think that can be a good indication of Mm. like effectiveness in advocacy, Mm -hmm. because oftentimes when it is performative, 
the marginalized are left marginalized and you're you end up benefiting from centering yourself in the opportunity to advocate yeah um and so to like for example in mark 5 when god or when god in jesus moves towards the woman with the issue of blood who is absolutely marginalized in so many different ways. The fact that she's a woman, the fact that she's unclean and has been bleeding for 12 years. And yet, you know, there's an element of where she moves towards him. uh, And there's an element where he restores identity, heals her and brings her back into the fold. to where she is no longer left as a marginalized, but as advocated for in such a way that it's um, redemptive and restorative to her full humanity. So I love the example that Jesus even lays out for us that like, He's always moving towards the marginalized, but he doesn't leave them that way. And I think that can be a helpful barometer for effective advocacy. And again, that doesn't mean that like every time we advocate for someone, there's going to be like an immediate success rate, if you will. But a good barometer will be, did you left, were you left feeling more important or were they left feeling more brought into the conversation or, you know, the space in which you are advocating for them. Another really important thing you just said is about who is the, uh, the recipient of advocacy Mm. in the Bible, because there's this strong, strong emphasis on the the powerless, the marginalized, Mm -hmm. the needy, you know, and we see this kind of, um, set that comes together of like the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the poor, you know, like consistently over and over again. So I just was just going to read um, beginning of Isaiah. So it's really interesting. Uh, God is just having a bit of a rant, a holy rant. <laughs> and um, and he's talking to people and he's been like, man, like you sacrifice. And he, this is the way he describes it. It's just like, you know, you you sacrifice to no purpose. You just trample my cause. So it's like you're you're coming in and out of church. You're singing songs. You know you you're doing loads of stuff. And he says, I just don't care. Yeah. And not only I don't care. Um, so like verse fifteen, he says, when you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide from you. Mm. Even though mm. you pray many prayers, I'm not going to listen because your hands are full of blood. And this is interesting. Like we talked about this a bit last week with responsibility. It's like part of responsibility is negligence. Like there's something you should have been doing Mm. and that has affected people negatively and you bear responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, what are the things that have got God so riled up here? And so he says to them, like your hands are full of blood, but wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds. So it's like, man, hardcore stuff you need cleansing from, like evil deeds. And so, and he just like, the summary is like, cease doing evil and learn to do good. And so it's like, but what things? Like, give me some tangible, you know, like, am I, and we would just, I think in the West, we're so individualistic, think like, yeah, like, don't sleep around, don't kill people, don't watch porn, don't, you know, don't steal. Mm-hmm. You know, it would just be all these individual sins. Mm-hmm. But like where it goes is seek justice, mm. correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Yeah. And so there's just, there were people who were suffering because these people were not um, doing justice. But the part we're talking about, which especially plead the widow's cause, right. is that really clear advocacy mm-hmm part in there right and these were it's just like god he didn't i mean it's so consistently through scripture it's not like god waited till there was some massive problem like oh man like uh 50 of society's widows we better do something about it right yeah like the widow the fatherless the poor like they're always there all the way through the scriptures i mean even like book of acts they're like this is a big thing how are we going to take care of widows you know mm-hmm. Like all the way New Testament to Old, consistently there. And God is like, there's not a book of the prophets where God isn't like, dudes, the poor, the widow, the orphan, come on. Like God just has this expectation that as human beings, he knows the world is not going to be one where like, I don't know, it's not like Star Trek and everyone just is kind of living the same life. Like everyone has access to the same stuff. You know, it's not beige. The world isn't beige. So he knows there's going to be people who are suffering. And his expectation 
is that we look around, we're moved by compassion, and we advocate for people. Mm -hmm. And And he's he's always upset that it's not happening. Well, and I think that you literally just hit on the uh, one of the other things we were going to be talking about equity, Um, because like equity assumes the the reality that the world's not beige. You know, equity is the evidence that the world is very broken and that there's people who have less than get treated less than um and are relegated to these lesser than uh sometimes even less than human places and positions um and in and when we advocate for others and when people let's be honest advocate for us because we're not the ones who have it all together all the time either um we we're recognizing that there's uh an an element of um of equity that needs to take place because because not everyone is equipped with what they need in order to live a life that is flourishing in community with others. Um, and, and that, and that has huge repercussions. So it's interesting how much advocacy and equity tie in together yeah. with one another. I just want to, cause I said it is through the Bible, not just read Isaiah. So I'm just going to pick up a couple more here. Um, Actually, we should have a New Testament one um, as well, but I haven't got one in mind. So I will look pleadingly at Molly and Amber again. But uh, this is uh, Zechariah 7. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. And I think that part, we're like, oh yeah, justice. Like, don't, don't lie. Don't try and steal. Cool. Show kindness and mercy to one another. That's just like a general paradigm of how we're supposed to act towards each other. Like, oh yeah, yeah, cool. I'm on board. But then it's the the next bit that so often escapes us. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, which is the refugee, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Um, and it, it's interesting because then as it goes on, the charge that the prophet's giving here is that they people refuse to pay attention they they turned a cold shoulder and stopped up their ears so they wouldn't hear. Mm. Even says like they made their hearts diamond hard. So it's like the problem here of feeling like our heart, our care can extend to another. Like, you know, if I was the one that was hungry, I would be strongly motivated to do something about it. Mm. Care and compassion means when I see someone else hungry, I feel motivated to do something about it as well. Mm-hmm. But the there's a hardness of heart and a kind of selfishness and like, well, you know, I can't advocate for you because I'm, re- I'm busy advocating for myself at the moment. Mm-hmm. And like, and that's how you end up with oppression because oppression doesn't always look like, oh, there's some widows. Let's go beat them up for fun. Or like, you know, well, they're supposed to be able to get the grain from the edge of the field, but like, let's steal it before they can get here. You know, it can just be simply like people can be oppressed when God has said they are supposed to get opportunity through the kindness and generosity of others. And when you don't extend that and you don't want to see it and you don't want to hear it and you want to give it the cold shoulder, you are oppressing them. And so so it's sort of. Yeah, just interesting because we think advocacy is uh, like philosophers use this word supererogatory. It's like it goes above and beyond the call of duty. Duty. Mm. It's not required of you, but it's like an extra, like gold star thing to do. Like, no, advocating is like a basic part of human life that we're mm-hmm. supposed to all enter into. And God's yeah upset at people. And another one I've got is Jeremiah uh, twenty-two. Um, I think. Yes, here we go. I'm looking at the wrong verse. Uh, Just a few verses in. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. What's that look like? Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Oh, sounds a lot like the Good Samaritan. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. There they are again. And do not shed innocent blood. And we're supposed to be careful to carry out those commands, you know. So it's the, it's the same set of people again, you know, linked together. Molly, you've got your Bible open. I do. I um 
I kind of have this one-two punch that I see from Matthew. Um, so, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount where uh, Jesus is kind of turning up the heat on the law, he talks about, um, and this is kind of going back to decentering yourself from the process of advocacy, but he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Mm. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then two chapters later... um, he uh, heals a man with leprosy. And so, he, you know, there, there's a financial aspect to the principle being talked about in um, Matthew chapter 6. But there's also, um, like, he kind of demonstrates what advocacy can look like like uh, in secret in the next uh, chapter when um, a man with leprosy comes and says, Lord, if you're willing, you make me clean. And Jesus reaches out his hands and says, I am willing, which mm. I think is significant. It shows the willingness of Jesus to be, you know, that advocate he says be clean and then says see that you don't tell anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift of Moses commanded as a testimony to them so I love that Jesus you know says do these things in secret and then practices that in secret and there's some other theological uh, elements to that story of of Mm. why that needs to be done in secret while he goes but I do love that Jesus doesn't just say like decenter yourself from the mission of advocacy but actually demonstrates it himself when he says see that no one knows that this is what I'm doing, but I've just set you free to participate in society and kind of uh, reestablish equity in your circumstances. Yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. So that was kind of the well, one. And there's that word equity again. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, you've, we've kind of started, but like let's shift gears fully to equity. Um, so this is tricky because I want us to be able to distinguish between equity and equality. Mm-hmm. So equity is this kind of principle of um, there's an even-handedness in how we treat people. So we don't privilege someone based on, um, I don't know, treating them as a means to an end. Mm. Like, oh, I can get more money if I treat you a certain way, or I can get more influence or fame if I treat you a certain way. I can make myself feel good if I treat you a certain way. Right. It's like a, a, equity is sort of there's there's something to the value of someone that demands they are treated a certain way. Equality is is really close to that, but it's the principle that everyone should be treated the same. Um, and that's interesting because that's actually a sort of watered down principle. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really have, it doesn't root in any values of like anthropology, like theological anthropology, like what makes a human valuable, like what's supposed to be valued in them. Like you could have total equality and be a complete ass to everyone, mm-hmm. right? Like that that can be equality. Um, so yeah, it's just, there's a slight difference we have to tease out between these two. But God has lots of examples. So I'll throw out some examples again of, of this equity. Um, so I'll just start with uh, in Leviticus, because I love this because it gets this group again of like the foreigner, the refugee. Um, you need to have the same law for the foreigner as for the native born, Leviticus twenty four twenty two, 22, right? Which is amazing. I mean, you think about most modern societies, like here I sit, right, as a non-immigrant in America because i got a weird accent and <laughs> like some weird foods, you know. I don't get treated the same. Mm. You know, I don't get taxed the same. I don't, like, there's lots of legal things. I, you know, I think, you know, if I got murdered and Molly got murdered, the police would be upset at both. Like, there's some things that yeah. are the same, but some things that are not. God, this is hardcore. God's expectation is like, it doesn't matter whether you're a foreigner or not. Because you're a human being, my laws apply to that person you know mm-hmm. i just i think you know it's really easy to agree with this and be like oh yeah of course and then you put it in the modern context of something like that and you're like oh this is super challenging mm-hmm. like to have the same laws really you know it's uh it kind of tweaks your mind mm-hmm. so what's what's some other examples of this equity 
in the Bible? Um, I was just reminded of the uh, Bible Project video when they establish what justice is, and um, they've got these uh, different platforms, and they're all on different levels, and they kind of demonstrate visually what equity can look like, is not just trying to take care of the person down on a platform lower than you, but actually like raising up that platform so that true equity can be established. It takes more than just saying like, oh, you and I have the same rights and responsibilities. It has to go above and beyond in recognizing that there are people that are acting at a deficit. And so in order to make up for that deficit, like moving above and beyond what is required, kind of similar to that philosophical principle Mm. is something that needs to be established in order for true equity to take place it's not just a like oh let's both climb up or you know let's say uh, there's this uh, there's this other visual of like someone trying to peek over the fence and instead of giving them you know the same amount of boxes that you might need to peek over the fence it's giving them the amount of boxes that they need to be able to peek over the fence yeah if i'm seven foot one and you give me a six inch box to stand on so i can see great but then if you're four foot 11 mm-hmm. and we give you the same six yep. inch box, you're still staring at the fence. Yes, exactly. And I think lots of people will have seen that picture. Yeah. But it's helpful. Point, right? it's helpful. It's really helpful. It's, it doesn't apply. Yeah. It's not a one size fits all. That's, I think that's the route yeah. of equality a little more than equity. And, and part of it as well is um, like the modern conversation, not to get into this too much, but is trying to help us realize what boxes we stand on. Mm-hmm. So justice is not something we just externalize, but equity, when it says treat everyone the same uh, or according to the same principles, like that includes you. Mm -hmm. So if you act in a really entitled way and are kind of greedy and selfish and, you know, but then, then you're like, yeah, but I treat everyone else the same way. Like my poor, my poor neighbor, my single mum neighbor, my rich neighbor, my neighbor who will always lend me their car, which is a Ferrari. Like I treat them the same. And that's what's really frustrating about that is like all those people have super different needs. Like every single person that you just mentioned, like their needs are not the same. You know, the single mom has a lot of different needs than the person who just lost their job or, um, and looking at the person who owns the Ferrari, are we even looking at what some of their needs might be because they're not as might not be as tangible, but an inequity says that we don't just treat them all the same. Like you said, like, Oh, I'm nice to them all. Or I give them all, you know, a Christmas card or I, you know, I, I'm generous to all of them the same, but asking like, what does, what does the mother need? Like going knocking on that, your neighbor's door and saying, Hey, how can I help you? Um, or in going to the person who, and even in community, when you're in community with people, um, I can say from experience, even just within the past couple of months, the needs with the various people in my community have been vastly different. Mm -hmm. And if I'm, uh, you know, called to be in community with these people, do I just go, Oh, well, I'm just going to, you know, if one person has financial needs, I'll give some money to them. But then the other person needs, you know, someone to watch their kid after school, you know, every day on, you know, or every you know, every Monday for, you know, the next couple of weeks while they're transitioning. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to do that because that's way more inconveniencing for me than to just give you a little bit of money. But that's not what they need. They need someone to be present with their kid. And so that's kind of another way that we show equity is not just saying, oh, well, I can do this because it's easy to just give, you know, this part of me to everybody. But the, the, the needs are different. And so, and some of the needs are going to cost more of me than others and being willing to step into those spaces that are harder. Um, even though that's what that person needs in order to feel more secure in the way that they're, um, in the direction that they're headed. Uh, and that's hard because it's so much easier as humans to just give everyone (laughs) the same sort of treatment. Um, but not recognizing that everyone's needs are different. And we see Jesus doing this, right? Like he treats every single person that he comes in contact with, um, according to the needs that they have uh the way he treats Zacchaeus is different than the way he treats Mary and Martha um and even Mary and Martha the way he treats them is different than than uh but they're sisters and they probably have a lot of similar life experiences but he knows their needs are different yeah and and does what is necessary I'm thinking about the um passage in John uh, 11, I think it is where Lazarus has died and Jesus goes and speaks with, um, Mary and Martha who call, who call for him and say, Hey, we, we need you. Yeah. Um, John 11. And, uh, 
And people give um, Martha a really hard time in this passage because they're like, oh, she just wants to talk about theological things. But the way, it, from what I read when I read John 11, the way I read her need is that she needs to understand and be comforted through through a mental understanding of like, what has just happened? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm struggling with this mental wrestling um, through, I'm trying to find the exact... Uh, exact part in in john 11 um and uh yeah but then he ends up talking about being the resurrection and the life um in addition to this uh when this is happening so um martha comes to him and martha goes oh geez where is this um this is the classic i've remembered a verse now i can't find it i'm not making it up i promise yeah right (laughs) um Yeah. Then Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you have been here, my brother wouldn't have died yet. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so we see this and we look at Martha getting kind of agitated. And again, like I said, she gets a lot of bad, um, bad press, uh, in comparison to her sister, but Jesus responds with your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So from Martha's, this is just a fun theological point, from Martha's Martha's struggle, Jesus recognizes um, that she needs some reassurance of who he is and then affirms, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, and then she goes, yes, Lord, I believe. So his revealing to her her need of needing to know who he is in the midst of all this results in her confession that he is the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. Um, And then right after that, having said this, Martha went back and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So then Mary comes and Mary has a very different need. She's much more um, deeply wounded emotionally by this thing that's happening. And not that Martha isn't, but we see this kind of, uh, we see the differences in them. And instead of needing some reassurance on who Jesus is, she needs Jesus to just be present with her. And that's where we get the passage in verse 35, Jesus wept. And so Jesus meeting these two different needs is, is showing that he's not just treating them both the same because he recognizes they're different people with different inadequacies, different strengths, different weaknesses, um, and is addressing them in that way. And so, like you said, Molly, if we aim to follow Jesus, then we can definitely take our cues from how he deals with people and works with people who are struggling um, and not just painting over them and saying, oh, you're fine, or or treating Martha with the, oh, you know, come here, Martha, it's going to be okay. Like, she didn't need that in that moment. Yeah. What she needed was was communication. She needed to kind of talk it out in a sense, um, and Mary didn't. Uh, Mary was just upset. Her response to Jesus was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So that's an emotional response of like, you should have been here. Why weren't you here? Um, and so, and the way Jesus responds to both of those, uh, both of those, um, situations is just kind of a a microcosm of the way that he looks at the needs of people and doesn't just do this, do what probably is what he wants to do, but does what is needed from, from people. Like a really practical example of that, just having talked about the gleaning laws. So God made a law, it's like the edges of the fields, the farmers, that's not for you to harvest. Actually, the way God says it um, is that the, those gleanings on the edges of the field are actually owned by the poor. Mm. You planted I the crops, that. but it belongs to them. Mm. Um, but here's like the equality version. is like, I've got loads of food in my barns, I'm a farmer, but I'm like, well, if they get to take some for free, I should get to take some for free too, because that's equality. And God would be like, uh, no, dude, that's not the intent behind this. The intent behind this is equity. So like, yes, your need to eat and their need to eat should be treated differently. Sorry, should be <laughs> uh, just strike that, reverse it. Uh, they should be treated the same. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have more of a need for food because you're male or because you're rich or because of the country you live in or because of color of your skin or like, but the difference between you is that their need for food is great and yours is small. Right. And so because they are the ones that are like on the bottom rung, not even the bottom, lower down on the the Mm -hmm. ladder, that means that their needs need to be met first. So God prioritizes those with the bigger needs. But um, 
equity means that nobody's needs matter more because of mm-hmm. these other kind of social structure factors and cultural factors. Yeah, that reminds me of the parable of the lost son, um, how he had already been given his inheritance. And when he comes back poor, he shouldn't have gotten anything. He should have had to work according to equality, right? Because his brother had been faithful and had stayed and done, you know, the right thing, you know, quote, finger quotes, right thing. Um, but when his brother comes back, the father runs, throws his robe around him, puts a ring on his finger and says, let's have a feast. My son is back. And that really makes the older brother upset. That really bothers him because he goes, I've been here. I want equal treatment. Oh, I just think of another parable that Jesus told, um, about workers in the field in different times of day. And if you know that parable, you know what I'm talking about, but back to the lost son, um, my son was lost, but now he's found like his need was, to be accepted back within the family, to be brought back into relationship and community. Um, and if the older brother had had maybe more of that mindset of, of, of looking at the needs of his brother as he comes back basically bruised and beaten from life, um, there would have been a different reaction, maybe a more of, of yes, let's, let's reinstate him. Um, because by all means, like that's not fair. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the way that the father treated the son in that instance wasn't fair because fair would be, yeah, you, you, you messed up, um, come back, yeah. but you serve me because you owe me now. Um, uh, but that wasn't That's such the a response. key word to get in fair. Like I yeah. just think about like at home, like you will, if you have kids one day, laugh your heads off in your own homes, but you don't have kids yet. And I do the sheer amount of times one sibling says, but that's not fair because they. Mm-hmm. And the response is always just like, they're not you. They're mm-hmm. older. They're younger. They're, they worked this morning. They loaded the dishwasher yesterday. They helped clean that. They cleaned the toilet last week. They just like, we've, we've got this kind of fairness, like desire in us, which is good. And I think that's why it's sometimes easier for people to get equality than equity, but to spot the differences that matter to how that fairness plays out seems to be something that comes really hard to us because mm. at bottom, we kind of view the world, you know, we kind of internalize it, you know, we, we reflect the world as this little microcosm inside our own head and our own ideas and desires and motivations and just that's what we interact with mm-hmm. which actually it reminds me there's a, a really cool verse isaiah thirty three fifteen, that says those who speak with equity keep their hands from accepting bribes because huh. it's really interesting because to like especially for the hebrew mindset like the way you talk reflects kind of the way you see the world like what is on the inside mm-hmm. so if uh if your perspective is one of equity, then that would actually stop you accepting a bribe. Because hmm. a bribe, like bribery makes justice a privilege based on wealth. Hmm. So God hates that because hmm. now that's not equity. You're not treating people according to like the things that actually matter about right. them. Um, and so I just love that idea. It's like if you build equity into the way you see the world, you talk about the world, you process the world, then actually the risk of oppressing goes down. Mm-hmm. It's like it's naturally going to be something that you will resist. Um, so, yeah, good biblical principle there. But we should get on to our third one. Yes. Which I think it's like the undercurrent mm-hmm. flowing through lots of these things. And that is power. So justice does have to do with power like it's impossible for us to really press into like god i want to live a life that's like biblically just like you say justice is without thinking about power dynamics Mm -hmm. because it's something that god consistently unpacks like he keeps talking to us about this group of people whose needs we ought to elevate in terms of their being powerless right And he keeps pointing at the people who bear the bulk of the responsibility to do something about this as those who have the most power. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's military power. Sometimes it's financial power. Sometimes it's kind of like 
priests and Levites. It's that kind of spiritual leadership or cultural leadership or prominence in society power. But all sorts of types of power, and it just it's a recurring theme mm-hmm. um, that we we just got to point at and put a finger on. So Molly, yes, you opened your Bible with like with purpose. <laughs> so yeah. so launch us with some Bible. <laughs> um, I, I was just chatting earlier with these two about um, just the first thing that came to mind for me in the scriptures when the conversation of power gets brought up is. Uh, the example, again, that Jesus establishes when offered um, mm. a lot of power. So in Matthew in Matthew 4, mm-hmm. uh, he's being tested in the wilderness. So he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and it says the tempter came mm. to him. Uh, and in the second temptation, uh, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. And he says, all of this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. So uh, I just think this is significant because I think uh, a few things happen. Jesus is establishing um, first that power is not something um, to be aiming towards as what like success on this earth looks like. I think that that is clear. I think he also uh, demonstrates a power dynamic of, um, you know, the the tempter is like offers him the kingdoms of this world, which Jesus comes to establish kingdom, but not in the way that the tempter is asking him to establish it. And so he, he flips power on its head and says, okay, so you give me you know, all the domain of this world, and yet I have to bow down to the one who is the enemy against my father. He he kind of flips the idea of like, okay, I could settle for your way of power, but it will be at the detriment of what my father is asking me to do on this earth. And I think that's another principle that we can learn from is there oftentimes we're going to be offered opportunities for power and influence at the expense of what God is asking us to do. And if we take our cues from Jesus again, it's to lay down the opportunity for power. Um, yeah, that might benefit you, but at yeah. the expense of the kingdom of God yeah. and seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. Um, and there's an element of trust there that is required mm-hmm. as well. Like Jesus in his humanity is trusting that if he follows uh, the way of obedience by saying, worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only, that... God's going to have a better way of establishing power and authority on this earth that's not going to look like what was just offered to him. So I just think that that's a really yeah. cool... And in some ways, like, it shouldn't element. surprise us about Jesus. Like, mm-hmm. this is his method. Like, it's God's method of how he's going to move his kingdom and establish his kingdom mm-hmm. forward. Um, and, and it makes a radical call on us. Like, in the world's way... Um, we all feel kind of we we struggle we wrestle with guilt and shame um but a shame especially can motivate us to make us want to make ourselves great because then we'll feel less ashamed mm-hmm. and so power becomes something that is inherently selfish or mm-hmm. it can become something inherently selfish and it's like everyone's walking around trying to build their own empire and everyone's in competition with everyone else. And it's like, and it's not the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the way of Jesus, though, isn't just don't do that. It's like this much more radical, like, way of, I don't know, getting to flourish and have that peace and have that safety and have that security. And so, like, Philippians 2 describes Jesus's method on God's mission to, like, re- reclaim the earth Mm -hmm. and if ever you would think like okay like god's gonna bang some heads together you know you you think oh i'm I'm about to read it and it's like no the way god's gonna lay the foundation of this so it it says in verse six jesus though he was by very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage so he had all this power, all this privilege, all this right, all this position, because he's actually God, like fully equal with God. He's not like a subordinate God. He's actually God. 
but he didn't use it to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself and made himself nothing. Hmm. Like he, he didn't use any of that power, any of that privilege, any of that stuff to accomplish the purpose. He made himself nothing and took the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So he moves from God to human, and not just human, but like lowly servant. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to live a life that's going to be about everyone else, mm-hmm. and I'm only ever going to be empowered to benefit someone else. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it means by na- that's what servanthood is. And so, how far does it go? Well, being mm-hmm. found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Mm-hmm. It goes all the way down. Like, I will give up everything. But then it's like the next bit is, therefore, God exalted him. And it's just so bizarre. Like, it's so easy culturally to live a life thinking, you know, when we want to assuage that shame or deal with our insecurity or even in positive things. Mm-hmm. Like, man, I want to, like, participate in church well or, like, be a good person in my street, in my community. Just the desire to be good. And like, it's so easy though for us to reach at, well, I will need, I need to like get more power for myself so I can do that. Instead of, oh, I need to like give up my power and serve. Mm. Right? So this is one that I just think Jesus is the ultimate. There's a reason we pointed at Jesus a lot. He's the ultimate example of this. But again, it's a thread through scripture and it's a call for Christians. Like what, what's life supposed to look like as a Jesus follower? It's supposed to be cruciform. Take up your cross daily to follow me. You know, and so, this, so this is a kind of startling one, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I mean, and it goes on further into the New Testament. And I this is like one of my favorite books too, but I know Amber is one of yours. So you should... Give us a little Philemon action because this is a great example of this dynamic at work. Yeah. Yeah, man. Such good examples, you guys. Like I think that when we look at power in the New Testament and I mean the Old Testament as well, but the New Testament we have Jesus to reflect back on and it goes, oh, okay. We see (laughs) how he deals with power. But, and it's funny because Paul says in one of his letters, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I think Philemon is a perfect example of where we look at Paul and go, this is a great example of how we're to respond with power and equity. Um, but, uh, yeah, power, sorry, power and advocacy. I think equity is in here. Um, but off just, a uh, off a of first read, it's really easy to see the advocacy and power dynamics that play out in Philemon. So we see, we know Onesimus is Philemon's slave. Um, and how Onesimus found Paul is a matter for, um, discussion, but the letter is essentially Paul saying, Hey, uh, Philemon, um, you're my fellow partner. We work together in the ministry of the gospel. Um, likely this is Philemon's church. Uh, Philemon leads a church, um, in, uh, Colossae and like maybe even the Colossian church. Um, and Paul says, I want you to welcome back your slave Onesimus as, uh, as a brother. Um, I, I, I want you to, uh, what does it say in, in, um, Philemon 17, Philemon is really short. So if you haven't read it, it's one chapter long. An so, easy read. One page. Yeah. When I say Philemon, uh, <laughs> 17, I mean Philemon verse 17. Um, it says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So Paul, it's, it's this kind of, it's so multi-layered. So Paul is recognizing his authority, which he states earlier in the letter, um, in verse eight, he says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to. So he's saying, I, I'm an apostle who, um, has kind of this level of authority and power over yeah. you, but I'm not going to force you to do throw down. Yeah. I'm not going to force you to do what I'm asking, but I'm reminding you that this is the way that we deal with the power that we have. So it could be seen that Paul's, Oh, isn't Paul being kind of manipulative there to say like, oh, I could do this, but I'm not going to. What I think is actually happening is Paul is saying, I have this power and I'm not going to wield it over you as almost like a shadow of, okay, Philemon, see what I'm saying. You have this power over Onesimus and I'm, I'm showing you what it is to not wield that power over him. 
um, because in the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, slaves did not have um, a ton of status. And if they were to escape or run away from their uh, masters, the masters had complete power to do whatever they wanted. So it was a, it was, you know, a felony in a sense to, to run away and whether or not Onesimus ran away is again, um, for conversation. But I think that there's clearly this reconciliation moment that needs to happen. And if, and without the gospel, Philemon had every right to not reconcile and to just kind of put his power over Onesimus. But Paul is saying, receive him as you would receive me. And because you would receive me like a partner, I want you to, I want you to step down and advocate for Onesimus as your, as your fellow partner, as your brother, as someone in Christ, has a new creation in Christ. So there's this level of when you have power, you have the responsibility of advocacy for the sake of those who don't. Um, and it's funny because there's this kind of wordplay that's happening here that Paul is saying that um, he says uh, in verse 12, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, sending my very heart. Um, so Paul is saying that, you know, this is some, someone that is so valuable and essential to the kingdom. It's someone that, um, I care for so deeply. And then we get to the, towards the end of the letter, uh, in verse 20, Paul says, refresh my heart in Christ. And just reading that as it is, you go, Oh, refresh Paul, like Paul's heart wants to be refreshed, but he uses the same word. So he's saying, refresh, refresh my heart, refresh Onesimus. When Onesimus, because likely it's Onesimus handing this letter back to Philemon to read, um, is likely what's happening here. So he's, I just imagine Onesimus standing there, like waiting for Philemon to respond in whatever way Philemon chooses to respond in. And then when Philemon gets to that verse, refresh my, or that line, refresh my heart in Christ, he looks up at Onesimus and goes, you just called Onesimus your heart and you want me to refresh him as he's come back from your imprisonment because Paul's in prison at the time. Um, and so there's this, this almost tenderness that you see when there's power that's laid down for, for the sake of others, not just laid down, but also used in behalf of, um, because if Onesimus was, uh, a slave that wronged Philemon, um, likely it didn't, it wasn't just Philemon, it was Philemon's family. It could have possibly been the church as well. Um, and so to, to ask him to come back is to also be an example for the whole church um, that Philemon's leading and saying, hey, this is what it looks like to speak on behalf of someone else, even though they've hurt you um, or potentially wronged you. And so this there's when there's power that's used for the sake of others and also laid down when it could be used in a certain way, it's there's this tenderness and there's this softness that takes place of reconciliation. So. Um, so I, I love Philemon for that reason, that there's so much that's going on in these, what, 25 small verses, um, that speaks a lot about how, when we have a voice, we are called to use that in the, for the sake of others, because we, when we have the power to advocate, um, it's just that it's power yeah. and, and using that not to thwap people over the head with it and say, you need to do this because I have this, but it's saying I, I very well have the ability to do what I want because I am the person with power, but there's that, that just word tenderness that comes in when you say, I'm not going to do yeah. that and I'm not going to respond in the way that maybe I want to, that feels like I, it, I could, um, but really thinking gospel centered. Cause that's like just what you said, Richard from Philippians, that's what Jesus did. Um, and so when Paul does it and then when Philemon does it, that's an example of what, well, we anticipate, you know, Philemon did that. We don't really get an answer in this letter. This um, but hints in church history that mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. Yeah, ended well but yeah there's, that's another story for another exactly day. <laughs> it is so and i mean it's here so it kind of shows it's kind of like you know lots of books in the bible like jonah don't really end with a definite answer but you kind of hope to yeah and the, the biblical writers the cultures often do this they leave the story unresolved mm -hmm. and the only way to resolve it is to kind of internalize that story in our own experience and so how work are we, out those as philemon's ourselves how do we advocate for yeah. those that we and that's the thing that's the over. thing that's so surprising to me about watching Christians at the moment talk about justice mm. because recognizing our power and the, the word we would use today a lot would be privilege. Mm -hmm. um, same, it means people, exact same people thing. Think we're, <laughs> yeah, people think we're trying to have a conversation about why you should feel guilty. Right, exactly. Rather than a conversation about this is supposed to empower you to think about what that power is for and go do something this is supposed to be an encouragement to get out there and do god's work and instead 
yeah, we can sadly, because we, we still misunderstand what power's for, we, we feel guilty because we think power's for self. Right. Like that's the root problem. Well, that's a lot of chat. And, and I like, I, we're going to have to talk about Philemon again because you mentioned that restoration mm-hmm. and reconciliation. And that's a big biblical theme for justice. So that'll be one of the ones for next week. So check in with us next week. We'll talk about that and a couple of others. Get this set of concepts together, wrap our hands around them so we can carry them forward. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the House of Learning podcast. This podcast is produced by A Jesus Church College based at Westside A Jesus Church in Portland, Oregon. AJC College trains and mobilizes the next generation of kingdom leaders through an accredited four-year degree in biblical studies with an emphasis on leadership and formation. We combine classroom learning with mentoring and ministry apprenticeship for a third of the cost of traditional college. To find out more, go to ajccollege.org or follow us on Instagram to find out if this is where God could be calling you to explore your calling. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share it with someone. And if you have a question you'd like us to chat about, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at ajccollege.org. If you can, send us a 20-second audio recording saying who you are and where you're from along with your question, and we'd love to include it in a future episode.